You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Scott Trench, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. What does financial freedom mean to you? It hit me like a ton of bricks. That same artwork I had seen in the galleries I could purchase for a fraction of the price through the connections I had made. The plan materialized in my head. I could buy and sell artwork online. Not only would I have the opportunity to ogle each piece as it went in and out of my door, I could make a pretty penny also. And that is just what I did. Within a year, I was selling hundreds of thousands of dollars of paintings. It was thrilling. I loved the art of the sale, negotiating, succeeding. But you know what I didn't love anymore? The artwork itself. To me, it had become a mere commodity. Pieces of paper that I could exchange for other things, or better yet, more paper. I wasn't an art lover. I was an achievement junkie. In fact, money only had so much appeal. It was a valuable lesson that I eventually applied to financial independence. It wasn't the financial abundance that it allowed me, but better yet, the freedom to pursue that which makes my heart thrum. Achievement, success, creativity. We hear so much about money being someone's reason for pursuing action, but for a few of us, like myself, money creates more motivation towards action. For us, financial freedom isn't success, it's fuel. Scott Trench is the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets. He is the author of a book on financial freedom called Set for Life and a co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. His goal is to help ordinary folks build extraordinary wealth in pursuit of financial freedom through real estate. Scott, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Yeah, how's it going? Thank you for having me. I had the privilege of sharing the mic with you at Camp Fi, where we did an episode with Whitney Hansen. also. That was a lot of fun being on the mic together. That's right. That was a very powerful episode, I thought. Everything that happens at Camp Fies is always powerful. <laughs> That's what I've come to the conclusion. Most yeah. of those conversations are deep. Yeah, I think that just shows the power of, uh, of what financial freedom can mean to people in their lives and, and how important it can be. You know, you heard four stories of people who were profoundly impacted by their ability to achieve financial freedom early. And in fact, I think that's going to be a big part of our conversation today, but I'd like to start with you at the beginning. Maybe a question you haven't been asked recently. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Were you competitive? Oh my gosh, I'm the most competitive person uh, as a kid until to this day. So I grew up in an upper middle class household in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland called Clarksville, Maryland. My father is an engineer. My mother is a oncology nurse, which is a very tough profession in particular for my mom. I'm dealing with a lot of folks who are terminally ill and, and do not recover. I met a lot of interesting people and had a lot of interesting stories there. But I would say my childhood was dominated by competitive athletics in particular. You know, I would say every single season for every single year I was playing a sport. In the spring, it would be baseball or lacrosse when I got older. In the summers, it was rugby. I've played rugby for 20 years. Uh, in the fall, it was uh, soccer or football. And in the winter, it was basketball. I didn't make the high school basketball team, so I was a wrestler. So just dominated by competition and athletics. And I imagine that continued into college also. You know, when I got to college, I actually had the opportunity to go play football, lacrosse in college, and I probably also could have wrestled in college. Uh, none of them at the highest level. You know, I, I chose to go to the best college that I got into, which was Vanderbilt University. And at Vanderbilt, I joined the rugby club. So um, I was actually heavily involved in my fraternity and social chair and captain of the rugby club. So that tells you what I, what I did in college. And it wasn't just sports, but it sounds like academically you were pretty engaged too. 
you know, I tried to get a straight A. I think I got two B's in high school and I, I try to have a high GPA in college as well. So try to be competitive on each of the fronts that were important to me growing up. I'm getting this idea that this theme of competition was pretty central to your life back then and probably still is now. I'm not happy if I don't have some sort of competitive outlet, whether again, that's rugby, basketball, video games, even business, that kind of stuff. I've always got to have a benchmark and be trying to get better. And what did you major in in college? I majored in economics and history, uh, which is a dual major, not a double major. And then I minored in corporate strategy and finance. And what did you see as your career path at that time? I mean, was finance and economics something that was really exciting to you or was it more like this is just a good career path to follow? I started off my college career intending to go pre-med. I got an internship actually at Johns Hopkins Hospital, partly through connections that my mom had as a nurse there for 30 years, did some oncology research. And that was kind of where I thought I was going to head in my academic pursuits. Once I did that though, I realized that the road to a cure for cancer is a really painful and slow one with one test by one test at a time really became kind of disillusioned with that approach to a career. Um, And luckily, because I was pre-med, I had taken enough general courses to kind of pivot. I thought I might go engineering, but then really became interested in economics and statistics and those types of things. So it sounds like you were looking for that nice mix of what engaged you and was exciting to you, but also was marketable when you got out of college to find a job. Absolutely. What was your first job? My first job out of college was as a financial analyst at a Fortune 500 telecommunications company. And basically what happened there was between my junior and senior year of college, I took an internship with this company. The internship was a great experience. And I think I performed reasonably well or well enough to at least get a job offer. And so they actually offered me that job within the first two weeks of my senior year. So partially out of fear and perhaps partially out of laziness, I accepted that job offer and did not spend the rest of my senior year looking for the best opportunity. And while I did not have a a terrible experience at the company, I did within the first year after graduating become very disillusioned with traditional employment, the career path at this company, and really became infatuated with this concept of financial independence in real estate. The Scott Trench of today would have done things a little bit differently, even from the outset. You know, maybe I would still have taken that internship, but maybe I would have not accepted the job offer and really thought scientifically about how I can give myself the best probability of getting a great starter job out of college. That said, everything happens for a reason, and that ended up translating to my career here at Bigger Pockets, which has been outstanding and I've been thrilled with. When you use the term starter job, it looks very logical, not like a guy who's searching for his deeper purpose in the world, but someone who kind of said, well, I need a job. How can I thrust myself forward? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I think like many people, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life in college or even in that first year out of college. Who knows that kind of stuff at that point? And you said you became disillusioned fairly quickly after you started the full-time job. How long did it take and what happened? probably about three months into it, I was looking for ways to take on more responsibility, be more aggressive, learn more. You know, the competitive instinct I talked about earlier really wasn't (laughs) offered. I would try to stay late and come up with ways to save the company money. Those efforts were either ignored or in one case, they were like, Scott, you got to stop staying late and we want you to clock out at these certain times because if you don't, then we got to pay you overtime. And I was like, what the heck? Don't pay me overtime, but don't send me home. I want to try to contribute more. I wasn't given those opportunities. I didn't see a path to a substantial income generation. I started doing side hustles and trying to earn more money elsewhere. And eventually, some point within that first three to six months, I discovered the concepts of personal finance and real estate investing. I became particularly a fan of Mr. Money Mustache. I think I heard him on either like the Radical Personal Finance podcast or the Mad Scientist podcast. Maybe they're the same thing. I'm mixing them up. And then um, Mr. Money Mustache's blog and then Bigger Pockets as well. I couldn't tell you the exact timeline. By kind of the six month mark, I was certainly going down that path, recentering my focus of my career on this financial freedom goal. Now, I find this interesting. You say you discovered Mr. Money Mustache while you were out looking to learn new skills and take on new responsibilities. And that almost sounds a little contradictory to a lot of people's stories. When they find Mr. Money Mustache, they're mostly tired of work or burned out or ready to leave the workplace. Did you find a contradiction or did you at least find that maybe you didn't have a lot in common with people commenting on his blog? 
it's five years now removed. So I'm not sure I can like specifically answer it. My, my guess, and again, take this with a grain of salt, is that I think I was looking for ways to become a better financial analyst. And so I was Googling lots of things on finance. And that's how I began down that path. And did you feel immediately like you fit in into that personal finance or even financial independence community? I remember that being a very powerful emotional attachment to that concept and um, really became the clear North Star of my career uh, around which I began designing everything else. My housing, my spending, my career, I changed careers, my investing approach, all that kind of stuff. And you say North Star, but again, I think a lot of people look, for instance, at Mr. Money Mustache and retirement is a big portion of what they're looking at, early retirement. For you, it sounds like that really was on the side burner. It was more about building financial independence. Is that fair? I think retirement was the goal, honestly. Financial freedom so that I could retire. I did not want to be sitting at that telecommunications job in 20 years working for the owner of the business. I wanted to be creating value for myself, the very least, or not working. And you seem to find real estate at about the same time. That was when you discovered bigger pockets. Yeah. In that same three to six month period after starting my first job, I discovered both Mr. Money Mustache and Bigger Pockets. Mr. Money Mustache was definitely prior to Bigger Pockets, but not by months, maybe by weeks. So it was kind of all happening simultaneously. I wanted to apply the Mr. Money Mustache frugality approach so that I could generate cash, live a happier, healthier life, and then deploy that cash into real estate investments. And at the time, did you have a real love for real estate investing or was it just the place you thought you could get the best returns? The house hacking concept in particular was the real driver for me. The fact that I could put down a very small down payment on a house, eliminate my rent, live for free. And the ROI calculation is ridiculous. For example, when I first duplex, I put down $12,000 on a $240,000 property. If that property appreciates 3%, you're looking at a $7,200 increase. That's like 60% ROI or something close to that on my $12,000 investment. Then I'm paying down the mortgage. Then I'm not paying rent. So I'm able to compute that in an average market condition, I can generate a 200% ROI and I'm at less risk in my mind than I was renting. So that was really the big attraction of real estate at first for me was that ability to leverage a house hack for astronomical returns relative to anything else I could think of with my money. And then of course, I continue to like real estate because I think that through hard work and the self-education and the hundreds or thousands of hours of self-education I've put in that I can continue to generate so slightly higher returns than other asset classes. Was there ever this idea, I'm going to ditch traditional work totally and become a real estate maven? Were you looking at it saying, well, I can buy a bunch of places. I can live off the passive income. I don't really have to do the nine to five anymore. That was certainly the goal. I think when I first started out, I plotted it out and I had like a 12-year timeline to get there. If I just kind of worked at the, the same job at the telecom company and invested in real estate, but I figured through real estate, I could dramatically accelerate that because I'm reducing my expenses on the housing front and generating cash flow. So if I discovered this concept three to six months into my career, by nine to 12 months at this job, I have concluded that not only do I have to invest in real estate or house hack, spend very little and invest the rest aggressively in stocks like index funds, that kind of stuff. But I also really need to give myself the potential to generate a lot more income. And my job was not going to cut it. So I changed careers around that time as well. And talk a little bit about that career change. What happened? I started my career in August, 2013. By May of 2014, let's call it eight, nine months later, I was fully into all this stuff. I had joined a mastermind group of local investors. I serendipitously come into this mastermind group and I remember being feeling very privileged to be around these super cool entrepreneurial guys who are crushing life. And I took every single one of them out to breakfast or lunch to just kind of network and get to know them. And in one of those meetings, I actually happened across the same workplace as Josh Dorkin the founder of biggerpockets.com. I bugged him a little bit. I think he told me to go away, kid, um, <laughs> and uh, stop bothering him. But I followed up six more times and eventually tried to take him out to lunch. And that's how I got introduced to Bigger Pockets. But around the time I left my first job, I think it was August or July 2014, nearly a year, or if not a little bit more than a year after I'd started, I had two job offers. I had an offer to work as a real estate agent in a brokerage, and I had an offer to join Bigger Pockets as the director of operations. I obviously chose the Bigger Pockets job. 
But I like to think that either of those opportunities both would have dramatically changed my income profile over the coming years. When you were talking about real estate and Mr. Money Mustache, it sounded like at the time you discovered both of those communities, retiring early and being financially free were a big part of the impetus to do what you were doing. As you started working at Bigger Pockets, you transitioned to a different way of thinking. Was retirement as important once you got into Bigger Pockets and started loving what you were doing? You're absolutely right. After I joined Bigger Pockets, my income began accelerating slowly at first, but more and more over time because I joined a startup. I was in charge of ad sales and the company exploded. Our reach is now 10 times what it was when I first started. The ability to generate income has gone up correspondingly in a lot of ways. Over time, I became wealthier. My income went from 50,000 to 100,000 and plus as now the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets. And so I've been able to generate a lot of income. I wrote a book. I invested in several rental properties. I invested in Bigger Pockets stock when the opportunity arose. And I've been able to generate a large net worth now that's particularly accelerated in the last two or three years. And it, you're right. It's no longer about retirement. I love what I do. I love the company. I don't need tons more money. I'm in this because I think we have a brand and a business that has a purpose and a mission. I'm responsible for leading that brand and making sure that it continues to be the good guy in this space for real estate investors and help change people's lives. I'm responsible for the career trajectories of our team. So there's a lot more to it now than the financial ties. I could retire right now and I'm well, well beyond the 4% rule for what I need to spend and what I think I need to spend for my family. It's now about the purpose and love of the work. As you made this transition, as you went further with bigger pockets, your income was rising. Did it change your ideas of things like passive income and side hustles? I mean, you've had stupendous success with your main hustle, right? With income in your career. Knowing what you know now, would you kind of look at your younger self and say, don't even bother side hustling, just follow your career path? It's an interesting question. If I were to stay, at the telecommunications company. Absolutely, I would have had to work on side hustles. Like I left my job within a year, right? I had no career to leave, right? I hadn't made any progress yet. I got like a 2% raise. I was pissed about it and I wasn't gonna put up with that and allow that to be my trajectory over the next coming years. I was a financial analyst one in my mind. And they actually told me later in the year that I was, no, you're an associate financial analyst and we're actually going to be able to promote you to financial analyst one so that we can give you more steps in the ladder and give you more raises. And for every reason, that just really rankled me. That was probably the straw that broke the camel's back at that time. In that position, when you're going to go from associate financial analyst to financial analyst one to financial analyst two to senior financial analyst to finance manager to senior finance manager to director of finance to senior director of finance to VP of finance to senior VP of finance to EVP and CFO over 25 year period getting incremental raises along the whole way. Absolutely. You've got to work on side hustles. The problem is if you're in that position, you're likely spending all that you're earning and your monthly accumulation rate is very likely low. And that means that you can't leave that job. You can't go from $80,000 to $60,000 if you have no cash in the bank and you're spending $70,000, even if the $60,000 a year job has much bigger and greater opportunity. If you're in that position, you got to focus on side hustles because you have no other way to accelerate your position until you cut your expenses and can take a bigger gamble. Savings and side hustles, because I know I've seen you write many times that savings is the first thing you have control over. And that, I think, is the catalyst for everything else. If you can save 50% of your income, then by definition, you are generating a one-year cushion in terms of your savings. And when you have that position to look out from, especially early on in life, that is enormous freedom and flexibility. It creates a tremendous amount of potential, which I was then able to realize. Perhaps my story is not repeatable because I joined a huge startup at the right time as a third employee. But there are degrees to which you can realize that potential. And you can't do it if you're not able to accumulate capital and get in the mindset of liberating yourself from feeling like you can take those risks and change careers and jobs. As I listen to your story, I feel like there's some irony there. You were in this analyst job. You really didn't like it. You wanted to liberate yourself from it. You learned about personal finance, financial independence, the idea of financial freedom pushed you to leave this job and work for bigger pockets. Now you've found your purpose and meaning 
and are well within what we would call financial independence, but have no interest in leaving work or being liberated. That seems a little ironic. Yeah. No, the, the irony is definitely there. I am stuck in this job, whether I like it or not. I happen to love it. But like, if I leave, I'm leaving our employees out to dry. I'm leaving our investors out to dry. I'm leaving our community potentially out to dry. So (laughs) yeah, I ironically have locked myself into my career for the foreseeable future. I'm totally fine with that in the pursuit of liberating myself. Yes. Given your history and your competitive nature, I mean, you were an avid athlete. You were incredibly competitive at school. Does it surprise you that financial independence itself was not enough to extract you from the workforce? I think there's a lot of truth to what you're implying there. I suppose that I would never have been happy for long. However, there's a lot of ways this could have gone, right? If I had joined the agent brokerage and become an agent, I like to think that I would have had a shot at becoming a high-producing agent, real estate agent, over time and generating a sizable income, building up an investment portfolio, yada, yada. I wonder if I would then just try to be the best possible agent that I could in my market, or if I would start a business, I might relax for a period of months. I'm sure I could spend you know, six weeks playing video games and <laughs> developing a belly, but I don't think it would have lasted perpetually. I think you're right with what you're implying. Well, it's an interesting dichotomy here because you say that your trajectory might not be recreatable, but I think what you mean is not recreatable by someone else. It sounds innate in your personality that you would have probably tried to recreate a similar path wherever you ended up. That's very possible, but who gets to join a company like Bigger Pockets as the third employee, right? And work hand in hand with the founder. There's a ton of different paths. You know, you always like to think you could make the most of a lot of situations. Who knows? I do know that if I had just continued to spend less than I earned and and make intelligent, informed investment decisions and take pot shots that were low risk with high upside, that eventually I would have been able to achieve financial freedom like many other people who are interested in this. I was going to say, certainly this idea of being in the right place at the right time sounds like luck, but clearly you had also set yourself up to be receptive to whatever good situation came your way. I've heard your story about meeting with this gentleman in the park and talking to him about starting businesses and then getting part of his mastermind. Clearly you were open to the possibility of good things happening to you. A big component to this and something I attribute to a lot of my success over the last couple of years is I'm very goal-oriented. I have written goals and I track my progress every single day. I try to take a step towards that every single day. And I knew those goals. That kind of led me to this conversation with that guy. So maybe if I hadn't ever met that guy and joined that mastermind group and then met Josh, some other loop would have materialized or come up downstream and resulted in a similar trajectory, maybe different timeline, different circumstances. You never know. I can't say for sure. And I have to attribute the fact that I joined Bigger Pockets in particular and met Josh Dorkin in particular to the privilege of my current situation. I love this conversation. And for one reason is we talk so much about passive income streams in personal finance and financial independence, but you seem to really go after or be active and thoughtful about the way you went about your career and making money. I'm going to quote you here from one of your blog posts. You said, want to know why the top 1% of Americans are super rich and why the gap keeps getting wider and wider between them and the rest of us? It's because money is a competitive sport and they know the rules. I like the sporting analogy and the fact that you put the word competitive in there. These are really active verbs, right? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in personal finance, we spend a lot of time playing up passive income, but you seem to take a fairly active role and suggest taking one towards career and money in general. You have to be very active in this sport in order to accumulate a large amount of wealth earlier in life, right? If you want to save 50% of your income or save a percentage of your income and invest passively in index funds and plot along, your model will tell you that you're going to achieve financial freedom after 10, 15, 20 years, depending on your savings rate. That's great. But like, why not if you're in your 20s or even early 30s, why wouldn't you be active on all fronts? There's spend less there's earn more, there's invest aggressively, 
and there's create assets. And some of these things could be done with very low risk, but with active energy. Like I mentioned, I think that if you can generate that wealth early in life, that position, that your kinetic potential, your, your ability to downstream have impact on society explodes. I know this is not popular, but I do think that there's a correlation between that and age and your ability to do that. So I think the stakes are high to get going after this early so that you can have that chance for more years of potential happiness, whatever it is. And to do that, I think you have to be very aggressive in a lot of fronts. For me, I spent very little. As soon as I had the accumulated capital, I aggressively invested in a house hack with putting down 5%, leveraging 95%. I joined a startup at the same time. I sold. I read every book I possibly could on sales to advance my career. I took 10 different shots to starting businesses. I tried a t-shirt business that failed. I tried to sell winter gloves for driving. I modeled out a winter tire rentals business. I never ended up taking action. On. I tutored. I drove for Uber. Eventually, I hit a winner. I wrote a book. That happened to be what I was passionate about and what I was interested in. That's There's probably a correlation between that. And that book has gone on to become a big seller. I don't use the word bestseller because anybody can call themselves a bestseller nowadays. And that book has been a technical bestseller in one category on Amazon, but it is not a New York Times bestseller or any real bestseller, but it is a seller. And so that was a good passive income stream. My real estate properties have been good passive income streams. My investment in bigger pockets has been a good income stream. And so there have been a couple over time, but it's because I've been all out aggressive. And I think you absolutely should be. Once you get to that point where you're financially free, or maybe if you want a different definition, credited investor, which means you have a net worth of over $1 million outside of your primary residence, or you earn over $200,000 a year if you're single, $300,000 a year if you're married. Once you get to that point, you can then begin playing to win. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you are worth 200 grand and you're starting out in this journey, and that 200 grand is split between $50,000 in your primary residence in equity, $100,000 in your 401k, and $50,000 in stocks and cash, and you save five or $6,000 a year, you are not going to be able to take a shot with $50,000 or $100,000 on an opportunity with real upside, or even $25,000. $50,000 is often the minimum for private investments like syndications, those kinds of things. You can't take a shot because if you lose all that, you're losing 10 years of cash flow accumulation. If you can get that position where you're worth a million dollars, now you can take a huge shot on an investment that has huge upside. And if you lose, no one likes to lose 50 to 100 grand, but you can play to win where the other guy can't, can't even enter that game. The risk profile is outrageous and he's legally prevented from going into that investment in most cases. You speak a lot about reaching financial freedom quickly. And there is a countercurrent theory that's been out there and growing in our community about slow financial independence or slow fi. What do you think of that movement? It certainly doesn't sound like what you've proposed in Set for Life as well as in your writing and podcasting. It presumes that by aggressively pursuing financial freedom, you're going to deprive yourself of a happy life. That's what I don't like about that assumption. The idea is you go after slow fi, spend your money, enjoy your life, who cares? You're going to reach it in 20 years instead of 40 years of a career. That's still an awesome thing. Spend your money, enjoy yourself now. Guess what? Like I'm the CEO of Bigger Pockets. I make way too much money nowadays and I'm privileged to be there. I live in a half duplex with my fiance. I drive my paid off Toyota Corolla and I'm going to go. It's Valentine's Day when we're recording this today. I'm going to take my fiance to a very nice dinner tonight. But because my housing expense and my transportation expense are so low, I could on a median salary still save probably 25 to 30% of my income based on my fixed overhead. It is your fixed overhead, your housing expense, your transportation expense, and your like ongoing food expense. Those are usually the big three for people. If you just like make reasonable decisions on those three fronts, you can aggressively plan your career out and then invest according to a philosophy that you've, that you've researched that is appropriate for your risk reward tolerance. You can go after financial freedom very aggressively without sacrificing your day-to-day life. I was about to say, you brought up that word sacrifice, and there are a lot of your contemporaries who really cringe whenever you suggest this idea that early in your career, you might have to sacrifice or grind away, so to speak, in order to build that strong financial base. Is sacrifice the wrong word? I mean, is it okay to sacrifice when you're early in your career if you have an endpoint in mind? 
I think this all comes down to the importance of getting this right, right out of college, right? Because I get it. I'm now 29. I'll turn 30 this year. And I don't want to do the things I did when I was 23. My, my, my goals in life are different. But when I was 23, what I wanted to do out of college was I wanted to work my week and then I wanted to buy several cases of cheap booze, maybe a handle of very cheap tequila or vodka, go to my friend's place, drink too much, and then dance ridiculously downtown. And I did that every single weekend and was an idiot. And that was a blast. But the thing is, I just lived in a crappy apartment at that time, worked my job, drove my Corolla, and did that. My happiness was the exact same as if I'd lived in a swanky apartment downtown. What was my sacrifice? My sacrifice was I brought lunch to work and I lived in a really not that nice apartment, I could have lived downtown in the swanky place. Instead, I was able to save up 20 grand in my first year. What is the sacrifice there? You know, I don't, I don't know. Did you feel the long nights in the office were a sacrifice? I mean, you've been very open about the fact that you worked and worked very hard hours at bigger pockets and fair, stayed late to write enough, blog posts, so et cetera. Is that my first job? Is <laughs> what I just described. So fair enough. The first job I kind of did the behavior I, I described there. Once I joined Bicker Pockets, my interests were ignited, and that's where, like I told you, I'm a competitive person. I wanted to do that work. What am I going to do? Go home at five and hang out, watch TV, and then try to get like a Tinder date or something? I was a single guy working at Bigger Pockets, so I was like, "Man, this is awesome! I got to write in the forums. I'm going to write for the blog. I'm going to do my day job, and then I'm going to do extra credit stuff based on this incredible opportunity at this company." I loved every minute of it. So yeah, I was definitely putting in extra hours once I got to Bigger Pockets to do that. I loved it and didn't see it as a sacrifice. And I still went out and hang out with my friends on the weekends carrying on the same silly behavior that I described earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think to those people who are saying, boy, I I don't want to sacrifice, I want financial independence so that I don't have to spend those hours in the office, do you think maybe they haven't found the right projects to work on? Because it sounds like to me, when you found a project or a company to work on that aligned with your identity and purpose, hard work no longer bothered you. It was part of the fun. Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that. Absolutely. What is it you're going to do with your free time? If you've got a hobby or a passion and you know what that is, then you got to do that, right? And maybe slow fi is the right approach for you. But like for me, my hobbies were I played rugby, I played video games, and I liked to go out and downtown with my buddies on the weekend. Those were my hobbies when I was just starting out in this journey. On Tuesday night, when I don't have rugby practice and it's Tuesday, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be by myself from 5 p.m. till 10 or 11. What am I going to do with that time? I could watch TV, I could play video games, or because I liked my job, I could just do more work. That was kind of the option. If I'd had that other passion that filled up that time and required more time, maybe I would have done things slightly differently, but I kind of found it with bigger pockets, I think. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel. This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. This might sound like a strange question, but as you got farther with bigger pockets and your passion became the position that you now are in, did your time or interest in running your own real estate decrease? I know Bigger Pockets is a real estate company, but at some point, did you find yourself more engaged in the day-to-day of the office and less engaged with dealing with the real estate that you owned and rented out? 100%. So there's a couple of things that happened here. One, I like my job at Bigger Pockets, and that became much more impactful to my financial position than my real estate holdings in a lot of ways. And two, I met a wonderful woman who I love very much and will marry later this year. So between those two things, my perceived value of my free time dramatically increased so much that I am no longer willing to manage my property. So I hired a property manager in in December 2019 in order to shift that burden onto them. And, you know, now I have a reason to go home on time every night and hang out because I love spending time with my fiance. If you had a crystal ball back in the day and you could see where you'd be today, this successful CEO of a big company engaged, happy and making a very high wage more than it sounds like you need. Do you think you would have gotten into real estate in the first place? I know that's hard to ask now because Bigger Pockets is a real estate company. But in a sense, do you think you would have side hustled if you had that crystal ball? Interesting question. I think that if you're going to be the CEO of a company of our size, we do about $20 million in annual revenue per year, you are most likely a founder of that business. You're most likely not a career guy like me, right? I have a very unusual circumstance, I think, in being in this position at this point in my career with this. And I think that it is directly related to my real estate activity, my passion for bigger pockets. Look, I love this company. I've posted 2,000 times to our forums. I've written 70 blog posts for it. I host a podcast. I meet a user at the local coffee shop sometimes twice a week. I met hundreds of these people and I love talking to them about real estate, personal finance, and all that kind of stuff. I think that it's because of my real estate activity in a large part that I'm here. I think to spin your question another way, I think that the fact that I saved my money and house hacked allowed me a great deal of confidence in selecting opportunities in front of me so that I could only select the biggest and best opportunity with that balance of risk reward. That is the power of real estate investing and saving in my career, I think. So tell me now, as like you said, you're in a very stable financial position, money no longer has to really be a motivator for you. What motivates you now? Impact. I like to use the example of like Ben Franklin, Warren Buffett, and Mark Cuban. All three of these guys have something in common, which is they all achieved financial independence at a very, very early age and then went on to change the world and have a very interesting and exciting life. The idea is, if I think if you can help people achieve financial freedom early in life, 50, 40, 30, 25, those are the people who are going to go on and have a disproportionate positive impact on society. And so I'm going to do everything in my power over the next couple of years to enable, facilitate that goal for as many people as possible. We're going to do it through real estate investing. If you're listening, you can do it through a lot of ways. Real estate is one tool of many. We're going to do it through real estate investing. And I think that is the real power and thing that I'm excited about. I'm a zealot. So I think that this is the way to solve global warming. (laughs) This is the way to solve income inequality. This is the way to solve our politics. The way to solve local community problems is free up your, your highest potential people really early in life to go on and make those changes downstream without the distraction of needing work. That's, I think, the purpose that I'm serving. So you would agree with my statement from the introduction. I said, for us, financial freedom isn't success. It's fuel. And for you, it sounds like it's fuel and maybe next level financial independence for you is more about impact. Absolutely. Very eloquently put. Now, let's put the uh, grandiose stuff aside. I'm still going to accumulate capital and build up my financial position so that I can design exactly the lifestyle I want or could want with a potentially fat fire. Right now, I don't like to spend a lot of money. That may change if I can develop large passive income streams by continuing to do what I love. I may go ahead and change my lifestyle and and spend accordingly. 
uh, as long as I can do this, do so responsibly within the constraints of my financial position. So you can call me out for that, but that is definitely a reality of my situation. And I would call maybe a contradiction, maybe not back to this idea of Mr. Money Mustache and mustachianism. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me that frugality and savings are a mechanism for you to have eventually what you want, but not necessarily unto themselves as important. So now that you have money, if you can build up that fat fire lifestyle, it's totally fine to spend and be non-frugal. Is that fair? That's true. Mustachianism is still very important to me in a lot of ways in the sense that becoming soft (laughs) is not something I'm interested in, right? So I don't think it's about going to the steakhouse and spending tons of money. I think it's more about like, I want to explore some awesome hobbies. I want to try four-wheeling. Like this year, I want to try four-wheeling. I want to try snowmobiling. I want to try scuba. I want to try hunting. I want to try a lot of different new hobbies that would have been out of my price range. None of them are in this construct of becoming soft. They're all in the concepts of, of trying to find this excitement. But like, I don't want a servant to cook for me or clean my house, that kind of stuff. I want to spend that money to generate excitement and new experiences and those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of spending that that are going to creep into my lifestyle now that I've kind of reached this position rather than maybe like the jacked up pickup truck. Although perhaps in the next five, 10 years, not not the next couple of years, a Tesla might be exciting. They're, They're kind of cool. The thing in the back of my mind about mustachianism is really about the badassity approach. And if I'm ever doing things because I'm, I'm being a wimp and I'm spending to avoid doing things that, that I could easily do myself, that's where I'm going to start being concerned rather than the dollars that I spend. It's more about self-reliance. Yes. So let's wrap up this conversation a little and let's talk about what advice you would give either to yourself, if you could go back and talk to yourself as you were getting out of college or to a young person coming out of college today, what advice would you give them about financial freedom? I would say understand what you value and what's fun for you and think through what's how that's going to change, right? What's valuable to you at 23 or what was valuable to me at 23 is no longer valuable to me at 29 going into 30, right? And so understand that's going to change and understand your fixed overhead. Your fixed overhead is what's going to really make or break your ability to move toward financial freedom. That's your housing expense and likely your car expense and then how you decide to eat on a regular basis by default. So if you can manage those three things, there's no reason that on a median salary, you can't accumulate a substantial amount of liquidity and cash and then go take some bets with that cash. Go try something. That's your starting point. I love the house hack concept. I love the idea of starting a business or a side hustle. I love taking pot shots. How do you take a shot at a business or side hustle every quarter? And that's low risk with high upside. Map out your career very realistically. Understand if things go the best they possibly can, what happens to me over the next three, five, seven, ten 10 years? And if I'm in this current trajectory and going along this current path, and if that's not acceptable, make the change early. It gets harder and harder with each passing year. We've talked about a few times here that your career trajectory may not be repeatable, but it sounds like you would give people similar career advice either way. I think especially when you're starting out, look at the career trajectory. If you're going to go financial analyst one, two, three, senior manager, whatever, like if you're going to go through that trajectory, understand that that reality and love what you do if you're going to go down that path and expect to have to pull one of the other levers on the savings, investing, or asset creation front to accelerate your journey. And then, you know, to maximize your odds of success, self-educate. When you think about managing people or doing those things, you don't have experience when you're starting out and experience is valuable in the workforce, but you can supplement that experience by reading a lot. You know, if you've read 10 books on management, you may not have the experience of a manager, but you might be able to be, in fact, a better manager or a better decision maker than a manager with 10 years experience and no educational component. So you can make up a lot of the gap, but of course, not all of it, uh, from that experience perspective with self-education and knowledge, and therefore give yourself a chance to dramatically accelerate your career. Where you stand today, any likelihood you're going to get rid of your rental properties or any likelihood you're going to buy new ones in the near future? I have a search out for another rental property. I've got specific criteria for that. I think I'll definitely buy it, uh, buy another one. Um, Now that I've got property management, it's largely passive. So I can worry about capital allocation and acquisition. And I think that the key to this game of rental property investing is to maintain a leverage amount that allows you to have a high enough return on investment. 
we probably don't have enough time to get into all of that. But basically, some of my properties have appreciated a lot in the last couple of years in Denver. I need to re-leverage them safely and redeploy that capital in either stocks, more real estate, or an alternative investment. All right. We always end up the same way on this podcast. What's up next in your life and where can we find you? Sure. So what's up next? I'm going to, I'm hoping to have a great 2020, explore a lot of those new hobbies and exciting adventures that I kind of articulated earlier. I'm going to get married this year um, and very much looking forward to that and started my life together with Virginia, my fiance. You can find out more about me at biggerpockets.com. You can just search my name. You can listen to the Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast, or you can follow me on Instagram at, at Scott underscore Trench. Well, congratulations on your upcoming nuptials as well as all of your success at Bigger Pockets and otherwise. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Scott Trench. That's a wrap. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I'd like to welcome Kathleen Hutch to the show. She is one of our Facebook group members, and I am happy to have her here to discuss one of our episodes. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. G. Thanks. I was hoping to get more input on some of the episodes and find out how they affect people's lives. And you wanted to talk about episode five, how to bring up financially responsible kids. That was with Doug Nordman, as well as JL Collins and his wife, Jane Collins. First, the most basic question, had you ever heard Jane Collins on a podcast before? No, this is the first time. So I had met JL and Jane at a Camp Fi Midwest. It was just such a blast talking to both of them. I thought it would be a real unique perspective to have her on the podcast as well as him. And so I thought it would be something people had not heard before. Tell me what were your first impressions when you heard this episode? First off, I wanted to listen to it because I didn't want to screw up my kids. But the first impressions, there's (laughs) (laughs) so my ideas of helping my kids learn about money, it's, it's kind of spot on with a few tweaks. So it was really nice listening to them talk about what they did to teach their children. How old are your kids right now? Six months and three and a half years. So Doug, I think was famous for saying in that episode, I asked him, when are your kids old enough to start teaching them about money? And he said, when they stop trying to eat it. So your three-year-old might be getting there soon. I've already started. What have you done? (laughs) Um, So when he goes to like the farmer's market, he has to negotiate for things that he wants. So we trade, uh, we have like lemons, we trade lemons with a farmer. So if he wants a papaya, which he doesn't eat, he has to trade or negotiate with her to get the papaya from a single lemon that he then doesn't want to give up. So the concept's still evolving with him. Yeah. And obviously the six month old, it's a little bit too early. I was interested in that episode because J.L. Collins in some senses seemed like he had a touch of remorse, like he maybe pushed the didactic teaching too far. And I think a lot about how important is the didactic teaching, meaning sitting down and trying to explain and teach them versus let them learn by experience or watching you. How much or how thoughtful are you being about sitting down and teaching your three-year-old will eventually become four and five. And at that point, do you think you'll sit them down to talk about these issues? Or do you think it's more, as you were saying, more real life experience? Right now, judging by his behavior and his personality, I would definitely have to just model it and just have conversations while we're going. I don't think he would sit down for a lecture. I think that's a common problem when they're little. The question is, Does it get better when they get older? I'm thinking back to the money (laughs) lessons I heard as a kid. I can't point to the number of times on one hand that my parents sat me down and taught me about personal finance or even anything for that matter. I think it was mostly learn as you go. You might be right. It might be learn as you go. But I've had times where my 
my mom specifically sat us down and showed us like how to open a checking account, how to balance your checkbooks. It didn't go over very well, but I still remember it. So I think it's, you know, dependent on age, personality, and uh, there are specific things you probably should sit down and talk to them when they're older and it's appropriate to talk to them about. So you mentioned when listening to the episode that you felt like you were doing most things similar or right. What were some of those things you identified with that they had talked about doing with their kids? The big one was modeling behavior. It's very much so like the do as I do type of thing. Uh, Same thing with diet. If you want your kids to eat vegetables, you need to start eating vegetables. You can't just be like, you have to eat this, even though I don't like it. So similarly with money, I'm trying to model the same behavior and, you know, talking about how we can have a grocery budget or how we need to save money to buy something that we want or how we can't buy all the toys every time we go to the store, which is not easy when your mom is buying your kids the toy. Darn grandparents, they always spoil them, don't they? I know. Tell me this, as your kids get older, do you think you're going to be forthright with them about your finances? Do you think you will open up your financial lives to them so they can see that kind of modeling behavior? Yes, I definitely will. That wasn't the plan. My parents did that for us. So I think it's rather effective. And at least they know where things are going. How old were you when your parents opened up the book, so to speak, and let you into the family finances? Probably about 15 or 16 when my mom sat us down and told us how much money she'd saved up for us to be able to afford college. So what level of college they could afford to pay for. But before that, you know, there was always talks about paying certain bills, uh, how much we could spend at grocery shopping, that sort of thing. Was there anything that surprised you? Like when they opened up the books and you saw how much money they had, were you surprised? Was it more or less than you thought it was going to be? Oh, yeah. When you're 16, 100 bucks is a lot of money. I mean, I don't. Back then, I'm old. But that was a lot of money. So you look and you're like, that's a lot of money. And really, you know, when you look back at it, you're like $28,000 is not that much in the scheme of things. I was about to say the perspective of the adult after you've had a job and see income coming in is a little bit different than the perspective of a, of a jobless 16-year-old. Was there anything in the episode that you didn't agree with? Was there any piece of advice or anything they did with their own kids where you're like, yeah, I would never do that? Actually, yes. I don't really intend on telling my kids I'm going to pay for college for them. Interesting. So how are you going to play it? I'm going to tell them they need to get a scholarship or they need to find other options to start funding their college. The funds that I put aside will be a last resort. So you will have money available. Yes. And you might even plan to use it to help them and benefit them, but you want them to go in thinking that it's all on them. Correct. Could that backfire at all? Could you see that going wrong? Oh, probably. (laughs) I don't know if that's the best decision to make. But um, even though my parents told us we could afford a certain amount, they definitely said, if you want to go to a school that costs more than this per year, you have to get a scholarship or you have to figure out a way to pick it up. Never in that conversation was loans mentioned. So I don't feel like giving a full ride will necessarily help them. But telling them they have nothing and they, you know, they have to take a loan out, that's probably not a great idea either. What about working? Do you think your kids are going to work when they become teenagers? I don't know. Me and my husband had completely different experiences. It, I think, will be up to their, their personality. You know, can they balance schoolwork with other extracurricular activities with work? Can they be self-starting, self-motivating, or am I going to have to push them? So my husband was completely self-motivating. He used to go out in the summer and work on fishing boats long line fishing boats go from Hawaii to Alaska and back. And that was all of his money that he used to spend for school. I, on the other hand, was a lazy bum. I just went to summer school and studied a lot. You know, it depends on the kid, I think. Yeah, school, it sounds like was your job. And that was okay, because you were doing well at it. Right. Well, my husband was doing well, too. He was straight A student. He's just a different personality from me. You know, I walked exactly the line that was expected of me. I'm tell I'm Asian. So I have the Asian mom expectations, you know, A is average, B is bad, C is can't come home. (laughs) I like that. Nowadays, in the personal finance realm, there is a lot of talk about how important is college. In fact, there is a large segment of this community that feels like college is less important than we used to think. 
How about for you? Is it for sure your kids have to go to college or could they go a different direction? No, it's not for sure they have to go to college. I don't know what the job market's going to be when they're old enough to go to college or to be in the workforce. Uh, and to be honest, my husband has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and he has an associate's degree as a air conditioning technician. And he doesn't use his bachelor's degree. His job is being an air conditioning technician. In some aspects, it's nice to have the bachelor's degree back you up because my husband gets into arguments all the time with engineers when they're engineering things improperly. And they go, well, what do you know? You don't have an engineering degree. And he goes, actually, I do. Hmm. So in some aspects, it will help you in life to be like, I have this higher education. I'm not stupid. I know what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, like you said, sometimes it's not useful. It's it's just a waste of money. I mean, if you're just going to learn basket weaving, unless you're the best most sought after basket weaver, it's probably not a good payoff. So tell me why this episode stood out to you to discuss the one about bringing up financially responsible kids. Why did that stick out? Do you want me to give you the honest reason? Sure. I can always cut. <laughs> it was because I saw that Doug and J.L. Collins were on. And I was like, oh, I wonder what they were thinking about this. And it sounds like their opinions and ideas and the way they brought up their children was pretty consistent with what you thought it would be. Yes, it was. Um, it was interesting to hear Jim Collins's answer of maybe I shouldn't have had so much lecture time with his daughter. So that helps me understand that I probably shouldn't plan on doing that much lecturing. And the backstory with J.L. Collins is he started his blog completely as a place to document the lessons he wanted to teach to his daughter. Because I believe at that time, he had brought forth the information to her. She might have been somewhat interested, but he figured, I need to archive this somewhere where it'll be available when she's ready to hear it. And that became J.L. Collins and H, his blog, eventually the book, The Simple Path to Wealth. But the magic behind that episode and really his story is most of what motivated him to become the person who's well known today in the personal finance community is this idea that he wanted to give his daughter those tools that would help her be self-sufficient and financially free. Right. And that's, that's my goal too for my children. Uh, to learn that. Actually, reading his reasons for writing the blog was actually why I started my blog. It started off as things I wanted my son to know. I started at the time when he was first born. But that being said, I liked it so much, I went and bought brand new his book. Brand new. This is a big thing for me. Uh, so I intend actually, uh, when I set up our, oh, I forgot the word. What's it when you do the family planning for the state? The state plan or the you mean will? state planning. Yeah, you're right. Well. I want to. I want to add in suggested readings or mandatory readings before they can get the money. So that's going to be one of the readings that is going to be on the list. It's funny. I have a family member who we gave some money for college for that family member, and I did make them go and get both the simple path to wealth and the millionaire next door. And I said, you can borrow this money, but only if you read if these you read books. That. And interestingly enough, after reading those books, he came back to me. He said, you realize they contradict each other a little bit. He's like, some of the investing advice in the simple path to wealth doesn't necessarily go with the millionaire next door. And I had never thought of it that way. And I guess it's true. But those were two things that I felt like any young person should know when they're embarking at the beginning of their financial lives. Right. But at some point, it's your parents are telling you what to do. And how much advice is he going to follow? One thing I get stuck on myself personally is this idea that if you are financially savvy between the ages of 20 and 30 and save as much money as you can, the power of compounding will really set you up for the rest of your life. And I look oh. back at my own history and I think if I hadn't worked so hard and saved so much between 20 and 40, because I, you know, I went to medical school, so that that's like years. 10 years. <laughs> exactly. Some years in, in debt. But the truth of the matter is, now, in my mid-40s, I don't really worry about money as much because it's doing the work for me on its own. It's been compounding for decades. And I just want to let young people know that if you are smart between 20 and 30, you can really help yourself out for the rest of your life. On the other hand, if you wait till you're 35 or 40, it just takes a lot longer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was fortunate. My mom 
I keep talking about myself. Sorry. <laughs> My you're mom su- did you're supposed thing. to. <laughs> My mom did the same thing. She set us up with a Roth IRA. We have a mutual funds. We had things in Vanguard. Now everyone knows where I invest through. Um, when I was, I think, 18, when I first started working and she just matched the Roth IRA until I was in college. And then she says, okay, you're on your own. And this was during 2001 timeframe. And I didn't even look at it. And now it's, it's more than tenfold what was put in originally. So it was a great start. And my parents did the same thing you did. It was mostly my mom did all the investment. My dad's a dentist. So all the money they either reinvested into the business or they invested into retirement funds, mutual funds, some stocks, uh, not, not a whole lot of stocks. But the only thing they did not do is step away at your age. They waited until um, my son was a year or six months old or something to sell their practice and step away. How old were they when they decided to do that? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know how old my parents are. That's they're, fair enough. Makes, they're 60s? Got it. But still not, you know, some people, especially they're physicians, right? So physicians practice mm-hmm. into their 70s and 80s. So <laughs> stepping There's... away at your 60s is still pretty young. Yeah. And, and you know what my dad does now that he's retired? What? The same thing he was doing before, but not being paid. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> he works for a clinic now and he can do what he loves doing, but without all the HIPAA paperwork and managing an office. Yeah, there's something, something happened to medicine. It went from this really exciting lifelong job gonna, to right, you're gonna help people yeah, and exactly. And it went to a pain of paperwork and electronic medical records, etc. I wanted to take the chance also to mention the other episodes which relate to this episode because we also did interview JL Collins on episode 71.5 as well as we did an episode very recently about dealing with your parents' finances. So here we're talking about kids' finances, but we did an episode about your parents' finances, episode 79. And we will be doing an episode with Doug Nordman and his daughter, Carol, about their new book that's coming out soon, but I have not recorded with them yet. Well, they're a little busy. (laughs) They're a little busy. I'm a little busy. Sometimes it's hard to coordinate schedules. So why don't you tell everybody where we can find you and what's up next in your life and mention your blog address too. So if people want to go read more, they can. You can find me at cookingupfire.com. And what's up next is I'm taking care of my three-year-old and my six-month-old and trying to raise them to be savvy with money. Well, thank you, Kathleen Hutch, for coming on and talking about bringing up financially responsible kids. That's episode five with JL Collins, Jane Collins, and Doug Nordman. That's a wrap. Thank you, Doc. What'd you think? Was it, was it, was it what you were looking for? Oh, exactly. <laughs> Good. That was exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I wanted, me personally, now again, I come to all these with an idea but I don't necessarily have to follow that idea. But I loved thinking about you and your evolution as a person. And that's why I started as you as a kid, this competitive guy who was an all-out achiever, just like in some ways I feel I am. And I wanted to follow that personality trait through your first job, discovering financial independence, and then discovering your life passion and how that changed your opinions of money and what's important in life. And um, I think you really addressed that very well. I mean, I coming out of this, at least from my side, said, hey, this is a guy who picked up all the right financial independence and financial freedom skills, but also did that second important piece, which was transition to finding identity and purpose in life. And I think if you do it right, and if you're lucky, you do exactly what you did, which is you have the freedom to transition to something else and you end up being hopefully a spectacular success at it because you are free to really go after that which keeps you up at night, that which makes you stay at the office till eight o'clock at night and write blog posts, that which makes you go out and meet people every week for coffee because they're on the forum. Those are the kind of things you do when you have passion in your life. And so it's really nice to look at your trajectory and see that's where you've ended and that it happens to also be incredibly financially successful. Yeah. Uh, so well, I, I think I that's a great it. story, man. 
And and it was just very fun to talk about myself and have you genuinely interested in, in what I had to say. I really appreciate that. You, yeah, you're a fantastic I host. So. I, I know I don't ask always the most straightforward questions, so I, I appreciate you going down the path with me. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.